Hello, I'm Paul Z. Jackson, the president of the Applied Improvisation Network, and I'm here with Barbara Tint. Barbara, say a few things about yourself. Hello, Paul. It's so lovely to be here with you in Holland. Um, I am one of the lucky applied improvisers around the world, and I, in my day life, I'm a university professor of conflict resolution, but more and more doing applied improvisation with all kinds of things, power, status, culture, humanitarian aid, things like that. And what brings a university professor to applied improvisation? Ha, ha, ha. Well, because life can be quite joyless in the halls of academia, for one. Um, that was certainly part of it for me. And because it's an amazing teaching modality, because it's an incredible opportunity for research, and because you get to meet awesome people that have a potentially different spirit than you sometimes find in academia. How did you find that other world? Applied improv? Yeah. I initially found out about Applied Improv through one Toby Fitch, who was a friend from Portland, and we were talking, and he told me about friends of his who used improv for training, and I grabbed his arm and nearly knocked him over to find out more. And it turned out to be the fabulous Gary Hirsch and others from On Your Feet, who I also knew. And that was it. And it just so happened that the next conference was in Portland, Oregon, where I live, which was quite fortuitous. And I went and have not come out since. And that was 2009. Did it feel like a brave decision to attend that first conference? Well, I'll tell you, I wasn't that brave. So there was a pre-conference session and then the three days of the conference. I only signed up initially for the pre-conference. I thought, all right, I'm going to check it out for one day. You know, you never know with these new crazy groups of people. So I didn't make a full commitment right away. Mm. But once I set foot in the building... I never wanted to come out, and I stayed for four days straight. So, no, at that point, it was not, you know, a big gamble. I already knew what I was getting into. During this time we've been here in Holland, mm -hmm. people wouldn't think of you as a cautious sort of person. <laughs> now, Paul, well, you, these I'm, are trade secrets. I'm thinking particularly of an activity, an improvisational activity, where you were the, the subject of that activity. Oh. Could you describe what that is, and then we'll talk a bit about that. Oh, you mean St. Peter's Chair, I that do. activity? Yes. Oh. Well, that was an awesome activity that I just did for the first time at this retreat. And one of the reasons it was so awesome was the fabulous Raymond van Dreel, who I got to do this activity with. Um, the way the activity works is somebody is chosen to play St. Peter, or God, depending on your perspective, your religious, spiritual affiliation. And uh, the job of St. Peter is to actually tell the new souls coming into the world about the life they're about to enter. And the way it works is that you get to tell the new soul who was played by Raman van Briel about your life, because it's basically your life story. But they get to ask certain questions. So you're basically talking about your life in the third person. And it's quite a wonderful experience, actually. What were some of the things that you recall from... That, that description you gave of your life in that format. You mean the personal experience that I had in doing that activity? Is that what you're asking? I'm asking first for a couple of the details, a okay. couple of the examples of what came out. Okay. And then how was that as an experience? Okay. Well, this conversation was focused a lot on work. I will start with the end. 
actually, where we did talk about how lucky this soul was going to be to work with such amazing people um, in this work of applied improvisation. So that was something that was very clear about this soul's future. Um, this soul learned a lot about following its heart as a way to find its life path, actually. And that is also connected to applied improv. Um, and what we already knew, which is that New York is the epicenter of the universe. Was everything that you said in the story that you told of your own life already known to you? Or were mm. you surprised by certain aspects or moments within that? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, I would say probably on some level, all of those things were already known to me, perhaps not as all of them as consciously as others. And I would say probably some things emerged that were highlighted to me in that experience in a new way, which I really enjoyed. Do you have an example of one of yeah. those? Um, I think when I was talking about my father, actually, um, you know, it was quite a fun and funny and lighthearted thing. But then there was a moment where I was talking about my father or the soul's father, actually, the soul whose name was 315. Uh, so I was telling 315 about its future father. And, I, you know, I've always known how I feel about my father or felt about my father. He's no longer alive. Um, but it completely changed the quality of the interview. Mm. Like it just completely shifted how I felt, the energy, the discussion, the feeling in the room. I mean, it was so dramatic for me. I don't know if it was for anybody else. It was. Yeah. It was clearly the dramatic moment of yeah. that interview. Yeah. Um, so that was really special for me because my father was probably one of the most important people in my life and deserved that moment. So mm. that was nice. And if you had to summarize the value of the activity as an activity that people might do, mm. having had the experience of being the, the subject of yeah. it, what would you say? It's a great activity, and there are a lot of beautiful things about it. I think it is so interesting. I was wondering whether the soul or soul slash interviewer, um, what the difference is if they actually know you, the person who's playing St. Peter and whose life they're learning about or not. Because I think it definitely, in this case, actually, um, Raymond obviously was asking some directed or specific questions because he knows me. So um, I think it could have, it could be really interesting either way. I think it's a beautiful way for people to safely explore their life. But, you know, stepping out of anything, so doing it in the third person, always makes you look at it differently. You can also ask about future questions. So, you know, we didn't really go there, but, you, you know, Raymond could have said something like, so, you know, what are, you know, what are you doing when you're 70? What am I doing when I'm 70? It should actually be because he's the soul wanting to know about his life. So, you know, it also could give people an opportunity to vision or fantasize about the future. Um, and uh, I think it's also a beautiful way for people to learn about you. I mean, I think if we were to all have mm. the time, I mean, I was the only one who did that one. We had other storytelling activities where people, other people told different kinds of stories but if we had time for everybody to do that activity it would be really amazing i mean we learn so much more about each other um what what is it that makes it an applied improvisation activity well um for one thing because we completely improvised the entire thing uh in the sense of well the, no, no script no script i actually didn't even understand what the activity was when i volunteered to do it was Probably good. So you're stepping, because... <laughs> you're stepping into an unknown. <laughs> because I probably I don't know if I would have chosen to do it once I if I had known what it was. 
Um, you're stepping into the unknown. You're having a conversation with somebody that evolves from ongoing iterative yes ands, you know, and when, again, you know, playing with somebody as skilled as Raymond made it, you know, so wonderful and beautiful. Um, but you also see where it goes. You're operating collaboratively. Um, you're making each other look good. You're um, seeing connections that you might not have seen before, you know, and something greater than the two of you as individuals emerges. Now, you have some special insight into what applied improvisation <laughs> is. Nice segue, Paul. Gee, I wonder if I wonder if he's going to ask me about the dun 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 the Delphi study. What? There's something he's playing hard to get. The Delphi study. Tell us about that. <laughs> Okay. Well, Paul, this was Paul's idea. It was all Paul's idea. The Delphi study is a research method where you uh, gather a panel of us who is determined to be experts in a particular field. And you ask them a set of questions because you're trying to get at some core answers or sometimes consensus about core dimensions of your subject of inquiry, which in this case was... What is applied improvisation? What is applied what, improvisation? What do applied improvisers right. think that they do? That's right. That's right. So I think maybe you can talk a little bit about your interest in having this done, since it was your idea, and I can talk about what we did. The interest was that there's no previously commissioned piece of work that describes in some sort of authoritative or academic way what applied improvisation is and people will all have their own ideas which is fine but to be able to have something that has a statement of credibility mm. is maybe a significant moment okay so what made this um credible look at this i'm interviewing him nice move let's go <laughs> what makes a delphi study credible to i'll ask you to talk about the process of okay. it right. but it's conducted by academics ah. in a in a protocol that has a recognizable, transparent way of working. Okay. So we can see the um, shape, size, and nature of it okay. and make our own assessment of its worth. It's all about those letters after our name. Okay. Um, well, you notice he said academics, not academic, because the best thing about this study was that Paul uh, partnered me with Adam Ferrer. I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly. Um, yes, Adam. Adam Ferrer who is a social psychologist, researcher, solutions-focused uh, practitioner uh, from Chicago, who, who had done a Delphi study for the solutions focus community, which is how Paul learned about it. Um, and so fortunately for me, Adam did the hard labor, <laughs> where um, we did come up with the experts. So we had certain criteria about what made somebody an expert, which you know, was an interesting process in itself. What, what sort of things make somebody an expert? Well, in this case, and, and you were part of this process as well. You stepped out as soon as we had the questions, but you helped us figure out what would qualify somebody. Uh, we had four criteria. I think you had to meet three of the four criteria. One, and you may correct me if I don't get the specifics correct. Uh, one was you had to have gone to at least three AIN conferences or been on the board or some service to AIN. You had to have written either a book, an article, a dissertation, some written piece of work 
for research uh, about applied improvisation. You had to be doing a certain number of workshops or teaching or training at a university uh, a year. I don't remember how many to qualify. And I think the other one was... Well, in other words, you had to be a contributing member of the community, yeah. active in applying improvisation yeah. in your work, yeah. and have thought about it enough to have written something yeah. and had that published. Yeah, I think there was also a core dimension of having had done this for a certain number of years. Mm -hmm. I think we had a minimum of number of years. So a mix of experience yeah. Yeah. and qualification. Yeah, exactly. So we basically pulled together who, you know, who certainly anybody was welcome to take. There's a qualifying survey that asks you enough of these questions to determine. It's all anonymous, so we couldn't just pick our friends. Um, and I think, I don't know how many applicants we had or people who were interested. We came up with 24 people who were eligible. Um, of those 24, I believe 18 actually chose to participate um, in the first round of questions. Um, so basically, we came up with a set of questions. We sent them out. All anonymous people had a certain period of time to answer them. After we got the answers back, we looked through the data, because at this point it is now data, and we came up what we thought with were what was their consensus on? So what was there enough that everybody or most everybody agreed on that we felt like, okay, that we got. We got the answer to that. And then we tried to summarize that and feed it back to people just to say, this is what we hear you saying, you know, are we right? Um, and for the things that still were a little unclear, we had multiple perspectives on. We came up with new questions to help kind of focus um, the next round. And we did that three times. There's an improvisational quality to that. So Absolutely. Hearing what you get back, building on yeah. it, asking questions that you didn't know you'd yeah. be asking exactly. until that moment. Exactly. It's also a form of what we call action research, where everything you find uh, informs what you do next. Mm. So it's, you know, it's an iterative process, which is you know, very congruent with improv. Uh, so we came up with a variety of things in the study, and you can read all about it mm -hmm. because Paul and fabulous Sarah have done an excellent job of posting it on the AIN Facebook page and other places maybe. I don't know. It's accessible to AIN yeah. Yeah. members and followers. Yeah, so Adam and I wrote it up. We did a couple of presentations, or I did. Adam couldn't be there at the Austin uh, Applied Improvisation Network conference, which were fun. Uh, and I think it's interesting. I think in a lot of ways uh, with this kind of research, it leaves you with more questions than answers. But mm. I think now we have more refined questions about what it is we want to be looking at or exploring. Well, let's, let's pick one or two things that you found okay. that were interesting or significant. Okay. Um, the two that jump out of me, I mean, there were about 10 areas that were quite interesting. The two that are jumping out to me right now um, are sort of the balance between structure and freedom in this work you know, what that looks like. Um, and I think for the most part, people said that, you know, you go in with a structure, but of course the balance of that is being free to depart if and when you need to. Uh, and how that's also connected with experience, that obviously the more experienced you are, um, you know, the more comfortable you might be in doing that. Uh, the other question that I think is much less resolved, and there's more deep, you know, deeper questions about the structure and freedom piece, but the other thing that I think is far less um, resolved is what we call it, you know, do we say, I'm doing applied improvisation, or do you just say, I do experiential training, or I do training, and you just happen to use improvisational methods, uh, and there are very divergent opinions on that, and I think as we're in a evolving field, and we're a field that's trying to create more of an identity, or, um, you know, a brand, for lack of a better word, oh God, that's like another word like harvest, 
we've been having problems with the word harvest this weekend. Um, I think that's going to be a more important question. I mean, some people are absolutely, we need to say this is what we're doing if we want to advance the field. And other people say it doesn't really matter what we call it as long as we get in the door. You know. Do you take a view? Oh, well, as a good conflict resolver, I will say it depends. Um, I kind of take both tacks personally, actually. But I will say that the more comfortable I get with the work, the more integrated it becomes with everything I do, the older I get, which is happening a lot, um, and the less I care either about you know, what anybody thinks or the more important it is to do the work I love, then, yeah, I call it what it is more and more. But there are times that I don't. Like I recently had a job interview for a job I did not get. And I wondered whether, because I talked about applied improvisation, maybe that was too alternative or edgy or, you know, I don't know. But then I thought, well, if they don't want me and that's what I do, well, then forget it. <laughs> mm, yes. How comfortably do the concepts and ideas of applied improvisation or improvisation in general sit with an academic world, either ah. in theory or in practice? Ah. Well, I think it sits quite well. There is not a Cartesian split between improvisation and academia. Uh, more and more, it is infused into all kinds of places, as those of us in this field know. It's being used at MIT and Stanford and London School of Economics and Harvard and all kinds of places in all kinds of ways. And I think academia is also ready for innovation. I mean, if academia doesn't wake up and develop more innovation, it's going to die like it is in some ways, really. I mean, I think people are beginning to question the value of an, ex at least in the U.S., because we have a different system, the value of an extremely expensive degree. It doesn't necessarily give you anything you can't get in other ways, you know. So I think we really have to think about innovative ways to engage people in thinking. And improvisation connects to innovation how? Because it, it's an inspirational modality. It, it, it gets people to think in innovative ways. It gets people to be far more creative. Uh, it gets people to uh, take risks and perspectives that they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and I think fundamentally, I don't think it's the goal, but I think it's the byproduct. You have happier, more fulfilled people. And I think when you have happier, more fulfilled people, your work world, your organizational world, your personal world, you know, they're better. What's one of your favorite projects where you've got to apply improvisation? Yeah. Well, there are so many. I'm so lucky. Uh, I think I'm going to talk about, um, two things. Um, you asked about one. Do I have to pick? Can I you talk? can talk about two things. All right. Well, I'll make them brief. Uh, so one is I'm doing a lot with improv with dispute resolution. So I'm going to be teaching at a law school, a class on improv for dispute resolution. The law school asked for it. They filled it. I mean, it wasn't even something I had to sell. So that's a lot related to, um, you know, where the field is going. I think it says a lot about improv being more accepted just in general. How, how does it fit? So uh, people are in a dispute who's who improvises and how well i think about it more in training people how to be mediators or lawyers how to be a mediator or a lawyer. yeah so learning about all the things about being you know creative and solutions being collaborative thinking about new perspectives you know being connected uh being able to make quick decisions uh being spontaneous um, all of those are skills say, that yes, help you be better yes, as yes, say a dispute yes. resolver you know, conflict is fundamentally about saying no to other people. Mm. So learning how to say yes doesn't mean I agree, roll over. It means, 
yes, we can figure this out. I What matters to me is important. What matters to you is important. And we'll figure it out. So quite specific, concrete skills that yes. have got clear applications to yes. being better at a craft yes. or as a profession. Yes, yes. So that's super important to me. And the other work is the work I'm doing with Simo on power and status. We're really developing... Simo Rutarin. Simo Rutarin. Uh, we're doing work on power and status. That's a whole framework we've developed. And we're super excited about it. And, you know, we're not sure where it's going to go. But, the you know, the work is great. And we'll see. Mm. Changing the world one workshop at a time. <laughs> we've been talking here about workshops as the main way that applied improvisation seems to manifest itself mm -hmm. at the moment mm -hmm. but given that overview and that sense of possibility where, where might applied improvisation mm. pop up mm. next well we had a great session where we all looked at what we considered the edges mm. of applied improv like sort of both our fantasy and our vision of where we think really the future of applied improv could be and people came up with amazing ideas i mean really um, such, you know, working on large-scale social issues with applied improv. Um, you know, somebody was talking about, like, getting it into the UN. We called it the Putin the Putin model. <laughs> We're going to get Putin to do applied improv. Um, you know, just really thinking about it as more infused into society as a whole, not just performers or not just trainers and facilitators. Um, so those are some possibilities. I think there are many. Mm. Anything else you'd like to add, say, at this point? Well, I will say, as I already told you um, earlier this weekend, that of all the great things you've done in this world, that forming this network is probably high on the list, at least from the outside, because you've done an amazing thing and brought together amazing people doing amazing stuff. So thanks for that. Not just me. Mm -hmm. Many of us. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank Bar you. Barbara Tint. All right.